The reading is taken from James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, which can be found on page 1214 in the Church Bibles. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Great, please keep the passage open in front of you. So that's page 1214, as we'll be referring to that. Not just referring to it, that's what we're going to be looking at, studying at, learning, learning from. So uh, please keep it in front of you. Very important to have it there. Let's pray together. Father, we pray, please, that you would teach us now as we come to your word. Give us attentive hearts that we would be able to focus on you, on your word. Give us understanding. Help us then to know how to apply what we are reading to our lives. Amen. Words are so powerful, aren't they? Pick the right words with the right timing and you can make people laugh. You can make people cry. You can make someone's day or you can devastate them. I saw this quote uh, this last week from science fiction writer Philip Dick. I've I've not heard of him before, but I saw this quote and I quite liked it. Um, He said this, There exists for everyone a sentence, a series of words, that has the power to destroy you. Another sentence exists, another series of words, that could heal you. If you're lucky, you will get the second but you can be certain of getting the first. Well, that was his view, but it does express, doesn't it, something of the power that words have. 
And in the book of James, he now turns to that subject, the subject of words or of the tongue. He has just said in the letter that our deeds matter. What we do matters. And for Christians, they should be an outflowing, an outworking of our faith. And if there aren't those deeds, that outworking of faith, then our faith is dead. That's what he said in the passage we looked at last week. And so immediately he turns to the use of the tongue, a subject he's, he's touched on already, but now comes back to and spends longer on in this passage. And he begins by referring, by, by talking to the, the Christians he's writing to about teachers. You notice that at the start. It, it's what he touches on, but it doesn't seem like he, he labours on that uh, for too long. He just sort of touches on it, saying, verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know we who teach will be judged more strictly. Maybe it was that, uh, there were, that there were lots who were wanting to be teachers, wanting to be preachers. Uh, maybe there were lots who wanted to. Maybe there was a particular prestige for being a teacher uh, of Christians. And so people were eager to instruct others. But he warns them not to be like that. And he does so because he says those who teach will be judged more strictly. Which is quite a warning, isn't it? That's a warning for me and for others who teach. Preachers, children's leaders, youth leaders, home group leaders, and so on and so on. If you teach in any way, this is a warning for us, isn't it? And then he explains, and his explanation takes him to the main subject, which is the tongue. And so he says, verse 2, We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. So he says, we all stumble, we all make a mess of things, we all uh, make a mess of things in what we say. And then he says four things about the tongue, and you can see them on the back of your notice sheet that you were given. You can see them there. If you want to make notes, you can, but you can just follow through as well. Uh, what I'm saying, it might help you just to, to see where we are. So four things about the tongue, and you've just read them all, yeah, but there you go. We'll take them in turn. First one, small but powerful. He goes straight into illustrations. We've seen this with James, haven't we? That he loves illustrations. And he goes straight into them now. So verse 3 uh, and 4, we've got two illustrations and they're making the same point. Okay, first illustration. Verse 3, when we put into the mouths of horses, when we put bits into the mouths of horses uh, to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. And the point is, the bit that's put in the horse's mouth is small. Uh, I've got one here. And thank you to Shannon uh, Walpole for uh, borrowing this from work and getting it to us. There's a bit that goes into a horse's mouth. Uh, and it is relatively small, isn't it? Compared to the size of a huge horse, you put that in its mouth and you can lead that horse wherever you want it to go. And it's amazing the control that a rider can have on a horse, isn't it? Doing incredible things to control that horse, make it go where it wants. I wouldn't have the confidence to do that at all, but I'm glad others do uh, by putting that in its mouth. And through that, that small thing, you can control the horse. And James then uses a similar analogy using, uh, with, with uh, a ship doesn't he? 
He says, uh, verse 4, or take, a ship, or take ships as an example, although they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Uh, I liked um, Mark's comment earlier when he saw that I'd got a bit there. He said, yeah, that was much easier to bring in than a whole ship, wasn't it? And he's right. Um, but you get the idea, huge ship driven by strong winds, strong forces, yet it's that small rudder at the back of the ship which directs it, which can steer it. Small thing has big impact. And James makes the point, doesn't he? He drives the point home, verse 5. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. And that great boasts, that's not necessarily negative boasts. It might just be uh, that James is saying, look, it, just, it can just do big things. Your tongue, small part of your body, relatively small part, but it does huge things, doesn't it? And we know that that's true. Words have founded nations. Words have started wars and brought peace. Words can win you a Nobel Prize or they can land you in prison. And we ought to pause on this just to acknowledge the significance of words in the spread of the gospel. That as you see in the Bible, particularly as you look through the book of Acts, the spread of the church, that is a spread of people speaking, preaching, using words. And as they do, people become Christians. Indeed, in the book of James, when he describes someone becoming a Christian, if you were just to turn back a page to James chapter 1, verse 18, how does he describe it? We've quoted this verse several times, haven't we? He says, um, he chose, this is God, chose to give us birth through the word of truth. It is words that God uses to bring about new birth. But when someone hears the gospel, they hear it and they believe it, a new birth happens, and that is all through the speaking of words and the hearing of words. And therefore, though of course James is saying not many should be teachers, yet we do need teachers and preachers to proclaim the gospel. And we need to pray for more who will faithfully handle the word of truth. It shouldn't be taken on lightly but it should be taken on by those gifted to do it. It is a daunting task, but it is a great privilege. So the tongue is small but powerful. That's our first point. Second, the tongue is devastatingly destructive. That's his next point with more illustrations. Second half of verse 5, he says, Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire. Well, we know that danger, don't we? The danger of fire. Last summer, in the incredible heat that we had, remember the, when we were getting up to over 40 degrees, and there were fires that were spreading, and people were being warned not to do barbecues and that kind of thing. We get that a bit in this country, we know in the news, don't we, uh, at other times of year. Maybe other countries have uh, fires that spread in terrifying ways in Australia or California or elsewhere. And sometimes it's just one spark that can get that fire going. One spark from a barbecue and devastation can be immense. And James is saying, so too the tongue. The tongue is like that. It has huge power for good, but the devastation it causes can be immense. 
And it is incredible, isn't it, to think of the devastation words can have. I don't know, I wonder whether you've, in the past, looked back on something, something like when Hitler was speaking to crowds and the amazing uh, oratory that he used, the words that he would speak, and people were gripped by it, and through his terrible words, there was huge devastation, wasn't there? But of course, we don't need to think of it on quite such a grand scale. Words are used daily in terrible ways, nasty ways. Social media, uh, there's so much that, uh, of words which are used to bring people down. I was listening to an interview with the cricketer Tammy Beaumont, who's one of the England women's cricketers. First England woman to hit a test match double hundred very recently. Incredible feat that she did. She was interviewed and she said in that interview, but the things, the messages she received on social media were horrific, really awful messages. Even though she'd done something so great. She said people sending her messages about how she looked. It's horrible, isn't it? Terrible, the devastation words can have. And we know that in our own lives too. For all of us, words other people have used have shaped our lives. And for some, even one sentence has devastated you, determined your life. Words have left you broken. And what's sobering is that we know that actually it can be us doing that to others as well. It's not just us as victims, it can be us as the perpetrators. Sometimes we wish we could take the words back, but we can't. But verse 6 goes in a slightly different direction, gives us a slightly different nuance. It's not just that our words are a fire to others. What does James say? He says, verse 6, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Now this word is a tricky, this verse is a tricky verse uh, in, in the Greek, uh, but it is saying your, word is a, your tongue is a world of evil, the world there being the world in opposition to God, the fallen sinful world, so it is a world of evil. It devastates not just others, but your whole life. It sets the course of your life. And the tongue is, you see there, anti-God, that's it being a world of evil, and pro-Satan, that is, uh, it is set on fire by hell. So the destructive power of words isn't just what what I do to others, but what I do to myself. Alec Mateer, in his book on James, says uh, that we should consider not only the words that we speak to others, but also the words we speak to ourselves. That is our inner monologue. And so often, I don't know about you, I find so often my inner monologue is very, very unhelpful. It is, isn't it? It can be untrue what we think. After a conversation with someone afterwards, maybe, maybe as you're lying on your bed at night, you think to yourself about what was said, and we can convince ourselves that someone was deliberately trying to hurt us, can't we? Or that maybe when a conversation hasn't happened, when someone's not phoning, you think, well, that must be because they've rejected me. We tell ourselves about other people's motives, other people's hatred, we become resentful, we become jealous, we could begin the night thinking that actually the conversation went well and end the night thinking it was a total disaster and the person is dead against me. 
We tell ourselves not only about what other people think, but about what God thinks. We say God is not for us, he's against us, he doesn't love us. All these are words that we think to ourselves and can be so devastatingly destructive. Are we just making things up? I wonder if you've spotted that in yourself. So James warns. He says words can be devastatingly destructive. But third, this adds to it as well, doesn't it? I mean, it just gets worse and worse. Uh, The tongue is untamable. Verse 7 and 8, more illustrations. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. By the way, he's not totally positive about the tongue. He says... All sorts of animals can be tamed, and they can be, can't they? People that do incredible things with animals to tame them, train them. Uh, if you were to go to a sea world or something, you might see dolphins doing incredible things, or uh, seals or sea lions, I'm not sure which one that is, uh, doing incredible routines, and you can watch them do that. And James, uh, I am not making particularly a comment about whether it's a good thing or not that people are training animals in this kind of thing, but his point is you can train them, but you can't train the tongue. You can't tame it. And again, we know this, don't we? How often have you said of yourself after a conversation, oh, I must be more careful what I say. I shouldn't have said that. And then we have to say it again and again. And yet, oddly, don't you find there are some who seem to pride themselves on not controlling what they say. There seems no guard on their lips. The filter process just doesn't exist. Words go from thought to mouth with no filter. And sometimes people will say, well, I just say it how I see it. Or I'm just being honest. But that is to say, I don't even try to tame my tongue. Imagine if someone were to go into coffee after this with a flamethrower, throwing it around, throwing around the blast of fire, and then just leaving with utter destruction behind them. That is what the tongue can do. And James is saying our problem, even if we try to tame our tongue, is it untamable. And so our last point... The tongue reveals the heart. James says we are such a contradiction. He's clearly talking to Christians here. He's got Christians in his sight. When he says verses 9 and 10, have a look at them. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. He says, we can, with our tongues, do the greatest thing on earth. We can praise the God who made us. But we can also curse people made in God's image, praising and cursing. The same mouth, the same tongue. He says, and this is an understatement, isn't it? This should not be. But it is. We can do it, can't we? We we can praise God in church with a song and then within minutes have slandered someone.
And James says this, this doesn't happen in other parts of creation. He says, a spring of water, verse, uh, verse 11, can both fresh, and water, fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? No, it can't. Uh, in the village where I grew up, there was a spring. Uh, and it was a fresh spring, fresh water. It was fresh. It's still fresh. It's going to keep being fresh. You're not going to get salt water out of it. Or he says, take trees. The next verse, verse 12. My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? No, it doesn't happen. You don't go to your fruit tree not knowing what fruit it's going to bear. As if you go and one year it's going to produce bananas, next year it might produce grapes. Who knows what it's going to produce? Or one day to another, I don't know what fruit I'm going to get. Just go out and pick something and we'll see what we get. No, it doesn't do it. It always produces the same kind of fruit. Well, he says it's just incongruous that a mouth should produce praise and curse. But here maybe James points us, hints at the solution for our tongues. Because the point about the spring is that the water that comes out is consistent with where it comes from. The fruit is consistent with the tree. What comes out, what is produced, depends on something deeper. So too with our words. They reveal what is going on in our hearts. That's what Jesus taught. Out, he says, uh, here you go from Luke chapter 6, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And it's a helpful lesson for us, isn't it? Because we tend to like to think, oh, I made a little slip. I'm so sorry what I said. I didn't mean what I said. Oh, I, I, you know, I, I wish I could take back. It was just words. And Jesus says, no, it's not just words, is it? Because for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. It comes out because it's inside. They reveal what's going on in our hearts. Bitter words come from a bitter heart. Proud words from a proud heart. Selfish words from a selfish heart. And words which are sometimes sweet and sometimes bitter from a divided heart which has been James's accusation to these Christians all along. If you've been following this series, we've seen that's what James has been saying all along, that the people he's writing to have divided hearts, trying to please the world and please Jesus, trying to do both. And he's saying you can't do it. What's the solution for our tongues? What's the solution for our words? Is the solution not to speak to anyone? No. No, that's not the solution. Is the solution for us just to try really hard to speak well? No. Because he's already said the tongue is untamable. You're going to try and do something that's impossible. What's the solution? The solution is to do with the heart. Because that is where the words come from. The solution is actually to come before God humbly and to ask him to change us. Ask him to forgive us and change our hearts and to keep changing us. Just look ahead, would you, to chapter 4, verses uh, 8 to 10. This is where we're heading. We haven't touched on these verses yet, and they're ahead of us, which is why, but uh, actually they're very significant verses within the book of James. 
And this is where James comes to. He's talking to Christians, remember. He says, verse 8, Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Here is the solution for double-minded people, for people who, as we think back on how we've used our tongues, think, yes, actually, I recognize my tongue as being, uh, as it's been described as a fire, as being something I can't control. We actually need to come to God and grieve and mourn and wail and say sorry to God and say, God, will you change me? And the promise there is that he will lift us up. It is not just doom and gloom. It's not just awful Christians going out with miserable faces on a Sunday. It is actually coming before God humbly and saying sorry and asking God to change us, that he would lift us up. And how does he do it? Well, he changes the desire of our hearts to love and desire God more than anything else, to know God's love and to delight in him, and that frees our hearts to be able to start to use words to heal and not hurt. It is with humble hearts fixed on Jesus that we can go into coffee, and I encourage you to do so after the service, that we can go into our workplaces and speak words with kindness, with good words, words of hope. I was speaking to someone recently who said their workplace was a hopeless place, a place without hope. People there just not got any hope. And being a Christian there can be such hard work, but it makes such a difference to be a person of hope in a hopeless world, using words to convey truth and life. And it all stems from a renewed heart. And so when we take communion today, if you're taking communion, will we ask God to remake our hearts, to wash us clean and change us, to love him above all else, and therefore to use our words in a way consistent with a heart set on Jesus. Let's take a moment, take a moment of quiet. Think what you need to change, what you need to do when we have communion, what you want to pray for yourself. Let's just take a moment of quiet. Father, we uh, come to you as those recognising how we have used words in bad ways. How we have used words to destroy rather than to build up. And we recognise, Father, that that shows hearts that are not set on you. And we confess our sin to you, ask you by the blood of Jesus, by his death, that you would forgive us, change our hearts, and then help us to use words in loving kindness to others. Amen.